Good morning. Good morning. I hope everyone had a good restful night. Is, is that not no, on? No. Oh, it's not on here. That's why. Now it should be on. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> yeah. I've had a restful night. Feel very refreshed. Great. <coughs> well, then, um, let's begin. So we'll, we'll begin with meditation. So if you'd like to adjust yourself, make yourself comfortable. Just become fully present. And what that means is let go of whatever thoughts you may have about anything that's past or future or elsewhere than right here, right now. Come into your senses, feelings of your body, sounds, so forth. Close your eyes. to explore the realm of sound. sounds in this environment and you'll notice that when you have the intention to be aware of sound that you notice a lot more sounds than you otherwise would sensations in the same way. Just open yourself up to it. And you might notice that because you had been uh, aware of sounds, that you're aware of sounds and bodily sensations at the same time.
you'll notice that in this field of conscious awareness of sounds and bodily sensations and of course the occasional thought or mental object <clears throat> that in any given moment there is one or another that is particularly prominent <coughs> someone coughs and immediately that becomes prominent and maybe goes to the sound of an airplane Your conscious experience has two components to it. We can distinguish two components. One is attention. That's what causes a particular thing to stand out quite prominently at any given moment. Your attention goes to that. But at the same time, in your peripheral awareness, everything else is present. So I want you to just explore that. First of all, just observe how your attention spontaneously moves from one thing to another. These spontaneous movements of attention are of several different kinds. Of course, you'll notice that something can capture your attention. For example, your attention may have been on the sound of the traffic when suddenly there's an itch on the side of your face and that captures your attention. Maybe someone coughs, and that sound captures your attention. <coughs> but just continue to observe these spontaneous movements of attention, and notice how anything that's the least bit uh, more intense or unusual or unexpected captures attention. sound of the church bell capture your attention?
but you'll notice that your attention is rarely still for very long. And even when it's not captured by something, it continues to move from one thing to another, as though attention is scanning for something of interest. something of more interest than what it had been on. Your attention lands on something, stays there until uh, it's satisfied with whatever that is, and then it begins to scan to other things, looking for something else. You just watch these two processes for a little while, of spontaneous movements of attention, as attention becomes captured and as attention scans from one thing to another. <coughs> Notice how <clears throat> attention is always on one thing in any given moment, but at the same time you're aware of many other things. So when the dog barks, you don't cease to be aware of, the, aware of your body, or the sound of the air conditioning, or the traffic, or anything else. 
that always simultaneously these two conscious processes, attention, which makes something stand out and isolates it from the rest and actually allows you to know it and see it more clearly, and then there's everything else in the background of awareness. object of attention, plus all of those other things that are present in peripheral awareness, they constitute the field of conscious awareness. Attention is mobile. Attention isolates one thing. Attention makes what it isolates clearer, sharper, identifies it specifically, gives it a label. And in daily life, attention also determines what, what, if any, kind of special relationship there is between you, yourself, and the object of attention. And notice it is a very different quality to the contents of awareness. You're aware of many things at once. It's a sort of global awareness. You're aware of their relationship to each other where they're located in space, time. You know something about their nature and significance. Awareness is more holistic. It's the background. And attention selects from that background. So explore that.
Let me point out something. You may have already noticed this. But attention moves from one thing to another in the field of conscious awareness. But for the most part, the things that it moves to were already present in awareness before attention went to them. The exception to that is, is some sudden uh, object, a sensation or a sound that abruptly inserts itself into conscious awareness. Those who have done a lot of meditation may have already discovered this, but everything that you become conscious of appears first in peripheral awareness, and then once it's in peripheral awareness, it can capture attention, or sometimes it just remains in peripheral awareness, and as long as it's still there, attention can happen to move to it as a part of its scanning. But everything you become conscious of appears first in peripheral awareness which makes it available to attention. Now I just want you to examine the nature of peripheral awareness for a little while with the thought in mind that you have no control over what appears and disappears from peripheral awareness. And as a matter of fact, what isn't present in peripheral awareness might as well 
not exist. But whatever is present in peripheral awareness is also available for attention to explore. attention. We've been allowing it to move freely, spontaneously. <clears throat> I want you to intentionally direct your attention, to choose where, where you direct your attention. Maybe to begin with, direct your attention to the sensations in your left hand and explore those sensations in your left hand. your attention to the sound of traffic. Monitor the sound of the traffic for a little while. Direct your attention to your body, exploring how it feels, still, comfortable, And of course, you might notice some tension somewhere. If you do, let it go. Continue to explore your body intentionally using attention. If you find something that needs adjustment, go ahead. If you notice that you're slumping over, straighten up. If you realize that the way you tucked your one, one foot under your other leg is a little bit uncomfortable, go ahead and move it. But notice how pleasant it feels. comfort, the stillness. <clears throat> Direct your attention to the sensations produced by breathing. Notice how the abdomen rises and falls, a little bit of lifting of the chest and shoulders maybe, feeling of the air moving in and out of the nostrils. Use attention to intentionally explore breath-related sensations. Mm 
earlier I told you that while awareness encompasses a lot, that attention is only on one thing at a time. Does that fit with your experience so far? Or have there been times when it seemed as though you were paying attention to more than one thing at a time? It's quite likely when you reflect you have had that sense of paying attention to more than one thing at a time. More than one thing that stands out prominently from the background of everything else. And in those longer periods, without my voice intruding, in particular, you might have noticed thoughts, memories, emotions. You may have noticed this, if not, I'm going to give you a chance to explore it right now. But it's almost as though those thoughts and memories and emotions are running on their own separate track. And that your attention can be focused on a sound or a sensation, while at the same time there's a little commentary going on about that in your mind. Or there may be an image of something completely unrelated that arises, or memory of something that happened earlier this morning, or a thought of something that may come up later today. I just point out to you that my voice has given a lot of intentionality to the behavior of your mind, and I'm going to give you a longer period when my voice isn't playing that role. What I want you to do is to continue this exploration of the nature of conscious experience, of this broader open awareness and all of the things it includes, which also includes thoughts and emotions and memories, and attention, and attention which causes one or sometimes more than one of those things to stand out prominently from the rest in the background. Okay.
So you have these two ways of being conscious. Awareness, broad, open, global, holistic. Not all that detailed. Not particularly analytical. And then you have this other mode of knowing, attention, that isolates something, brings it into sharp, clear focus, identifies it, evaluates it, potentially analyzes it. Within peripheral awareness, there are every kind of sensory information, one time or another. Although sitting quietly with your eyes closed, it's mostly sounds and body sensations. And other things are present occasionally. And the other thing that you're aware of is a continuous stream of mental activity of various kinds. Thoughts in the form of self-talk, narration, commentary, or I wonder if I put food out for the cat, or whatever. Likewise, in awareness is this continuous stream of mental states. Oh, isn't this nice? Isn't this beautiful? Oh, I'm getting tired of this. When is he going to shut up and let me move? Thoughts and mental states, emotions. Occasional memories thrown in. And awareness can take any of these things. When awareness takes a particular sound, it becomes very prominent and very clear. When attention takes one of these thoughts, attention, these mental objects have a special power for capturing attention. We tend to lose ourselves in these thoughts. But isn't it interesting that you can be aware of a thought without being captured by it? Awareness you have very little control over. You do have a way of influencing the contents of awareness, and I'll point that out to you in a moment. But awareness is not something that you have immediate, direct control over. Things enter and leave the field of peripheral awareness. But you have all this control over attention. You can direct it where you want, explore anything in particular. Although, as you well know, that control is somewhat limited. These spontaneous movements of attention happen, and one of the things we do in meditation is try to stabilize attention. Essentially, 
to minimize the spontaneous movements of attention in favor of intentional movements of attention and the ability to stabilize the attention on one thing for long periods of time. There's a reason for that. What I want you to notice now is how stability of attention affects the quality of peripheral awareness. If you've ever watched clouds, you may have noticed that if you focus your eyes on the top of a flagpole, you can see the changing panorama of the clouds in the sky much more clearly. So let's do something like that with attention right now. I want you to focus the attention on, on the breath movements as the abdomen rises and falls. And I want you to notice that when you focus the attention there, how it really opens up and makes clearer everything else in awareness at the same time. There's two things you can compare here. When attention is constantly moving, peripheral awareness is not as clear. When attention is stable, peripheral awareness becomes much more clear. I want you to investigate that right now. Just anchor your attention to something simple. Don't dive into it. Only point is to keep attention from moving so much. And notice how everything else just sharpens up immediately. perhaps say that you become more fully present when attention is stable as compared to when it's moving.
So this has been quite a journey. We've explored a lot of territories. I've given you a lot of things to reflect on. I think this is enough for now. So just open your eyes and uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about what you have experienced and what you may have learned as a result of that. <coughs> yes? Or are you stretching? I'm stretching. You're stretching, okay. Well, I'm looking for someone to comment. I need to, I'll give you a question to just the simple difference between attention and peripheral awareness. Is that really clear? Is there anybody that it's not clear for? It's not clear for you? Well, I have a question about um, <clears throat> using a certain thing as an anchor point, um, mm -hmm. like focusing on your breathing, sort of like watching the clouds against a flagpole. Yeah. Um, the difference between diving into that uh, instead of uh, using it just like as an anchor point while simultaneously like um, using just mindful awareness instead of, I guess, like a super intention to focus on um, that particular like sensation. We're going to be, we're going to be that experientially. You know, I did. I guess we could have sat here all morning and kept going through these things, but I thought you kind of needed a break from that. But okay, what what I'm going to guide you in noticing later on is is that difference that there is a there's a trade-off between peripheral awareness and attention. The more closely you focus attention, the more you dive into something, it tends to rob power from peripheral awareness. <clears throat> and so if you, if you anchor attention so it's no longer moving, then this allows the conscious power to, to bring out the larger picture. Um, so there's, there's always this trade-off, these balance, the balance between the two. The limitation, where we can conceive of this limitation, is that you have only so much conscious power, and you have two ways of knowing. Conscious experience takes these two forms. So if you've got just so much conscious power, it's got to be distributed between these two. And there's a lot of flexibility in that. But the interesting thing, which we'll get to as we go along, is that you can increase the total amount of conscious power that you have available. This is one of the most important things that comes from the practice, if you practice in the, in the right way, is that your mind becomes more powerful, there's more mental energy available, and you can be, you can have very powerful peripheral awareness and very strongly focused attention that examines in great detail at the same time. Also, your skill in deciding how you distribute that so that you can skillfully choose how much how much of one and how much of the other that you want. Does that address what you were thinking about? So, uh, I mean, I'm just telling you that now, but I plan to 
do the same thing, guide, guide you in experiencing that directly. Yes? I noticed that my attention, attention is very um, flippant, very elusive, except when I focus on my breathing, which I have done for so many years. It's very solid, very easy, go right into it, but as soon as I change that, I cannot focus at long on one thing. Is that a sign for what I practice and what I don't? Well, what you have practiced a lot is always going to be easier. But, um, and, and relatively speaking, you'll always find the difference that something that you have practiced anchoring your attention to is going to be easier to anchor your attention to than something that you've yet to practice on. But as, as you continue, the, the practice isn't always just attention to the sensations of the breath of the nose. And so as, as you exercise these skills in different ways, you naturally become much more capable of anchoring your attention to anything you choose at any time. And even now, you're saying you're noticing the difference between the two, but I would suggest to you it's very, very likely that your ability to anchor your attention to something that you've never tried to anchor it to before is very significantly greater than what it would have been um, before you started to meditate. But you, uh, as we go along, you know, there's, there's in, in, the, in the development of this whole skill set, there's a lot of different practices and a lot of different ways that we use attention and awareness. And, and so you, it ends up being applied to many other things. It gives you a lot of versatility in how you use your mind, which is especially important in your daily life. Right? It, it does spill over in your daily life. Yes? Yeah. I have a question because I, I'm not sure I'm doing this right. Um, um, I have a little song that I for a long time say to myself, calm body, clear mind. I think I mentioned that to you before. And it's mm -hmm. just like turning on a switch. When I say clear mind, it's like peripheral vision. Everything is crystal clear, like, mm -hmm. like clear deep water. I mean, I'm so aware of... Um, so that in itself becomes, has become my object of attention. Is Which becomes your object of attention? The clarity itself. The clarity itself. Peripheral clarity. Mm -hmm. So it's not the breathing, and it's not, you know, sensations of the nostril, it's the clarity itself. It's sort of okay. like the story with no words, it's just there. It's just mm -hmm. really clear, but I'm not sure that that's what you're talking about or where, where I'm well, trying to go. The, as we were going through this together, did you notice that there is this, that attention is different than peripheral awareness and that one thing would be really prominent compared to the rest and that your experience of it is qualitatively different? But when one thing stands out from the rest, of, there are qualitative differences. You, it, it, it stands out in a different way. It's it's labeled. It's identified. It's so on and so forth. Okay. So when you're doing this other <coughs> this other way of meditating, where you know it's uh, 
where you're experiencing the clarity. Is attention present there? Is 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 attention focused on the clarity? Yes, very okay. very distinct and strong. Okay. But it but it's more nebulous thing than than an attention on the breath. Sort of like mm -hmm. it takes the place of attention on on an object or 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 a mm -hmm. body sensation. Okay. Well, amongst all the things that I, I'm intending to help everyone become aware of, hoping that I succeed in doing this, is that they, well first of all, as we talked about last night, there is, uh, there are, is, is the external, there are external things that you know through your senses, and the internal things that originate in your mind, right? Okay. So the, the content of awareness and the object of attention in any given moment could be categorized as, as introspective if it's taking, some, if it's taking uh, a mental object or the state of the mind, or, which the clarity you're talking about would be state, the, the state of the mind. It's introspective. You, you, when you know something introspectively, it falls in that category, right? Whereas the sounds and the sensations in your body, or if it's a, something you smell, or whatever, that's extrospective. It's coming from outside. Now, um, with and this applies to both attention and uh, awareness. The contents of your awareness is a mixture of introspective and extrospective content. The object of your attention can be something that is introspective in nature. Like when your attention is focused on a thought and you're just kind of carried away by a thought, that's a, that's a kind of introspective attention. And that's that's how we use that term, right? You know, we sit and introspect, we examine our mind, or we think about something, and so forth. Or the object of attention can be external, extrospective. So what you're describing here would be an example of introspective attention that is directed specifically at uh, an aspect of your mental state, which is the clarity. And that's, that's a valuable and important kind of thing to do. And that uh, everybody will, uh, if you continue to meditate and, and you come to understand your mind and you exercise these different faculties that you have, you'll sooner or later uh, learn to do what you've done. Now you've you've constructed a little cue, you know, like Pavlov's dogs. They ring the bell and they salivate. You know, okay. so you have this little mental cue you've developed, and you've practiced it enough so that you just think think these words to yourself, and and, and it it puts you there. This is attention. This is a very very specific and specialized case of attention. As a matter of fact. Uh, it probably, you haven't described it in detail, but I would suspect it would fall into a category that's not only introspective, but is also somewhat metacognitive, as though you stepped back from a higher vantage point. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Right now, you're, you're sort of pulling us into talking about things that we haven't actually directly addressed yet. 
at least in this session today. But uh, in terms of what we have addressed, there still are these same two components. There is awareness and there's attention, and your attention is being selectively and intentionally focused in a particular way. Yes. I hopefully I'm not jumping the gun here, but I I wanted to get um, uh, as clear as possible about um, the difference between practice that that develops the attention and focuses it, as you have uh, uh, discussed clearly in your your book, Light on Meditation, um, and open awareness practices. Um, where there is letting the mind jump around according to whatever stimulus is coming in. Um, my impression is that the, 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 the first order of business, since we come from a samsaric background of wandering, mm-hmm. wandering and, and not much development of attention, is that we're trying in the initial stages to develop that stability of attention mm-hmm. through Anapanasati, um, and I, coming from the Tibetan tradition, uh, originally was trained, for example, to always meditate with the eyes open. Um, we've given instruction to meditate with the eyes closed, which makes all kinds of sense in terms of breath awareness. But what I wanted to get a sense of is um, is this it, it, is the path is that path of of um, Focusing and training and deepening the attention first, um, always what you recommend, or is that more of a matter of uh, one size not fitting? Mm-hmm. All? The way that I would uh, describe it is to, to use a, a metaphor. Okay, you're asking several things. You're asking uh, about there are practices like open awareness practice where you let your mind go to a lot of different things. And you're asking how how these how what we're doing fits in with this larger variety of things. What I'm trying to do is to systematically build up an understanding. So it's like, okay, you you've you've come to a woodworking shop, you know, and um, I'm asking you to uh, learn to hammer a nail in straight and set a screw and, and things like that. And you're saying, but what about using a spoke shave? Now, it's possible that you could learn to, you could just come into the woodworking shop and say, I don't want to bother with all that other stuff. I want to learn to use a spoke shave. And you could learn to use a spoke shave. For those of you who don't know, a spoke shave is a, it's like a, a kind of draw knife that you uh, make nice straight round things like wheel spokes and arrows and, and uh, the, the sticks that are the back of your rocking chair and stuff. <laughs> okay. And uh, it's, it's kind of a specialized skill. But you can learn to do that and never learn to hammer a nail or to sand a piece of wood or to do any of these other things. Uh, what I'm trying to do is, is, is sort of, we'll start with the basic. Now, the uh, choiceless attention is a very powerful technique 
that I mean, it, it becomes very powerful, especially when you've already developed stability of attention and powerful mindfulness. And so in terms of the, the ten stages of meditation, it's a very appropriate practice for stage eight. You know, it's true, somebody could practice that way early on, but it, it's going to be, they're going to be pretty limited. I mean, they can, they can make lots of sticks to go in the back of rocking chairs, but there's no way they can make the rest of the rocking chair. Well, it's exactly. I mean, that's that's why I'm. That's exactly why I'm here. Is that I think that um, maybe and maybe everybody else is is clear about this too. But there's I, there's a tremendous tendency in to uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, use of trustless awareness, or there's a lot of um, uh, certainly interest in things like Dzogchen and Mahamudra, things like that. That um, that. A lot of people become make a beeline to these practices without having exactly. the stability of attention. Um, yeah. uh, that's pretty, and I, I, I see that in a, a lot of other things where, um, even if you look at like a lot of a lot of Shinzen stuff, is shifting the attention from this to this to this to this. But there, you know, the one thing that isn't there is anapanasati and developing concentration. So um, uh, it seems like the thing that there is a dearth of is this development of the stages of shamatha and what you're saying is well by stage eight then you have enough stability um, that uh, open awareness practice um, uh, non-discursive non-meditation actually could become a reality but that seems to be something that's almost non-existent um, out there well I, I I agree with you that is the case um, there's a lot of people in this room coming from a lot of different backgrounds, been exposed to a lot of different forms of meditation and things like that. There is a lot of confusion, inevitably. Um, and one of the things that you say is true is that people, you know, don't don't bother me with that other stuff. I want to do Mahamudra, right? I want to do Tantra. And uh, that, that is very much a, a, a Western thing that you know uh, teachers come from from the East and nobody wants to start in kindergarten nobody wants to go through grade school it's like you know then put me in the PhD program I, I haven't got time to waste and it's and to my point of view it's just about as successful is taking somebody who hasn't learned to read yet and putting them in a PhD program. It's just about that successful. And so we've got an awful lot of people that have been these, in these PhD programs for decades and don't really have a lot to show for it, although they've learned a lot of lingo and throw it around and stuff like that. Uh, but this is actually a reflection of... Uh, uh, a human tendency. Something very unfortunate has happened in the Buddhist tradition, in both the uh, uh, Indo-Tibetan tradition and in the Southeast Asian Theravadan tradition, um, which is that the value and importance of samadhi and samatha has been minimalized and marginalized. In Southeast Asia, it's in the sense of 
don't bother with that samadhi stuff. It's not good for you. Don't bother with that samatha. It's a waste of time. What you want is mindfulness and vipassana. And they've been separated from each other. They were never separated. They, they, They can't really practically, functionally be separated from each other. But they have been in this way. The same thing in the Indo-Tibetan tradition. You know, it's uh, there's in the traditional, in, in the truly traditional process, not not the transplanted process that's catering to Westerners who want to be graduate students before they go to grade school. In in the tradition, they're still required to do the training and. Samatha and Samatha before they start doing uh, Mahamudra and, and Dzogchen. But even there, uh, there has been the subtly encroached this attitude that those things aren't really that important and a tendency to almost gloss over them, give them lip service. Now, if you enter a monastery when you're five years old and you're subjected to various forms of training from five years old on, um, the fact that the institution that you're part of may be may tend to poo-poo somewhat these more basic practices isn't going to be too big of an obstacle. Although it still is. I mean, Tibetan monasteries are full of people who have never mastered the basics of meditation and they've totally given up on, on uh, doing anything beyond that. So I'm, I'm really retro here. I'm saying, you know, let's go back, do it the way it used to be done, and let's, let's build a foundation before we start putting the roof, to, roof together, you know, and things like that. I've also found that concentration practice is harder. Harder than what? Than just uh, general awareness practice, shifting around a lot. Well, I'm not sure what you mean by general awareness practice. I mean, isn't that what everybody's doing all the time every day? Well, I mean, kind of how mindfulness was taught without concentration. It's it's easier. See, that's... And that's kind of, that's not true. You know, if you go to these Vipassana centers, the teacher might say, we're going to teach you mindfulness, you know, not concentration. And you say, great, okay, how do I do that? Okay, focus your breath on the, your attention on the rise and fall of the abdomen. And when something else intrudes, you direct your attention to it and label it. And you go through a long period, a really long, tedious period of frustration where uh, the process is difficult and you don't have much success. Until you've developed the stability of attention where you can focus your attention on the rise and fall of the breath, have peripheral awareness. And actually you're developing, every time some distraction intrudes, and you succeed in remembering what you're doing and immediately go to it and label it, you're training your mind in peripheral awareness. It will eventually get you to that place where your attention is stable and you acknowledge these, you see these things in peripheral awareness and without any forgetting or mind wandering or anything else intervening, your mind directly goes to it, slaps a label on it and comes back.
if you continue long enough, you'll get to a place where you're not noting anymore. You're not slapping a label on it. You're noticing. And what you're doing when you're noticing is you don't need to move the attention anymore. You've got stable attention and powerful peripheral awareness. And now you've reached the stage in the Vipassana process where for the first time you have a degree of mindfulness and you're actually able to meditate in such a way that there's a likelihood that you'll experience insight. But you've kind of been told a story because this whole time you've been developing stability of attention and increasing the power of peripheral awareness. So I'm just telling the story in a different way. So let's just call a spade a spade and do what we say we're doing. Yes? Um, depending on what school you go to or who your teacher is, or especially a school versus a teacher, mm-hmm. you get you do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, and you do it in this order. Mm-hmm. This order, blah, blah, blah. And hopefully at the end of this, you will no longer be suffering. Hopefully. Okay. When um, I took pilot training, mm-hmm. I had to do that. I had to do this, 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 and this, in this particular order, okay? And I did that, and one day, the, te- the teacher says, okay, now you do it. I hadn't had that teacher to tell me at mm-hmm. that point that, go ahead and do it. I would have gone on for a very long time thinking I wasn't ready. Mm-hmm. Right? And I see the teacher as a person who says um, who says to the students, "You've got it at this level. You don't have to do this anymore. This anymore." Mm-hmm. You progress beyond that. Now just go do it. I'm trying to work into a question here. But, um, <laughs> and what I what I see, um, I don't see a lot of that happening. Not just here, but I don't see it happening in a, in a lot of places. The only mm-hmm. time I've ever seen it happen is in the Zen practice, mm-hmm. where you have that direct. Um, um, interface with the teacher mm-hmm. who is making judgments and evaluations of where you are based on I'm not sure what. Mm-hmm. Well, wait, the, wait, wait, wait. Because okay. it's short circuits. Okay. You know I'm always looking for the shortcut, right? Right, you're always looking for shortcuts. So it, it, you know, it, it can speed up the process. Uh, it can. Um, I don't know. It's just I can see all kinds of benefits from having a parallel. You're, you're doing you're doing this practice, and you're doing it in this order, and you're studying this ten things and that ten things. But there doesn't seem to be a parallel track that says, "Okay, you're three steps ahead," or "You're two steps behind." See, that, that's exactly what I'm trying to provide, and I use the ten stages as the vehicle for doing that. And to clearly define uh, at each stage which particular skills you need to be exercising and developing, and to point out and say, 
But and by the way, not all of you may be familiar with the 10 stages. If you go to the Dharma Treasure website, there is a summary of the 10 stages. Uh, it's called Meditation Manual or something like that. I think so. Yeah. But which you can download. It's a summary of the 10 stages. It's very brief. And uh, 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 Kevin made reference to, to the book uh, uh, that I'm just completing am informally making it available to a few people, but hope to have it published and universally available in the very near future. But in the 10 stages, we're doing exactly what you're talking about, except in, in a far more precise and detailed way than you would, would find in, in something like Zen. At every stage, there are certain certain skills you need to develop and certain techniques you need to use and uh, once you've done what's appropriate to that stage then there are different skills you should be focusing on and different uh, and different methods to to do that and the role of the okay the, the purpose of the book is to make that of the information available to everyone and the purpose of the teacher is to guide the student and help them make them, help them to understand where they are, what they need to be doing next, or what it is that they've neglected to do that they should should be doing. So this this is what I'm I'm trying to do. And as with the Zen tradition, I think it's really important to have interviews with the students to find out where they are to, to evaluate where they are and to point them in the right direction. Um, and as much as I can in, in the course of one weekend, that's what I'm trying to do with all of you, and we've just started the process here, but is to guide you step by step in understanding how these things unfold. You know, as an example, a lot of people have this idea that somehow single-pointed attention is really a, a really important thing and somehow the be-all and end-all of concentration. It's nothing but a means to an end. Once you are able to sustain your attention, and I don't even like the term single-pointed because it's very misleading. I, I use exclusive attention. Once you have the ability to exercise exclusive attention, you don't need that anymore. I mean, you've got it whenever you want it, and you can use it in any way you want to. But it's, you know, it, it's, it's a means to, to a much larger and further end. And so that's the point at which... Uh, that you do something else that's more appropriate. It was, it was sort of what you were describing in, in your flight in, instructor training. But yeah, it's, it's a process. And there are many parts to the process. And it, uh, the, the, uh, going back to what Kevin brought up, is that there are people who are enamored of certain parts of the process to the extent that... They are get beyond the process. Well, one thing is that they never get beyond that particular part of the process, but they also tend to neglect the other parts of the process that, that help to pull it all together and make it into the, the full, more powerful vehicle that it should be. Are you talking about me? No. <laughs> Chris? I'm getting a lot out of the many kinds of language that you're using to describe 
things. So I'm, I'm just verifying when you say uh, one-pointed attention and you don't like that, and exclusive attention, is, is that like choiceless? Oh. No. Okay. No. That's, that's actually, should I get into a digression? It's, sometimes it's good to kind of see what lies down the road, probably further down the road than we'll be able to get today. Um, but exclusive attention or single-pointed attention is where uh, you have intentionally defined where your attention is going to rest, uh, which is another way of saying that you intentionally defined everything that your attention is going to exclude. So your attention is not going to bounce back and forth between the chosen object and something else. And it's not going to expand and contract its scope to take in more and less. You know, you decided to focus on this and only this, and your attention very cooperatively and compliantly rests on that and stays there until you tell it to move. That's exclusive attention. Okay. Now, once you've trained your mind so it does that, now you can give it a different instruction. Okay. You can give it. You can say what I want you to do is notice this, and then notice how this causes that, and then notice what comes after that, and then notice what happens after that. And your mind will very obediently go bang, 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 and this part of you that's the observer will say, "Oh wow! So that's how that works." The choiceless awareness is another practice that you can do, which is you say, okay, mind, go ahead and do your thing. I'm just going to watch so I can figure out what the heck is going on here. <laughs> and that's, you can practice choiceless awareness. Now, if you take a person whose mind is used to going wherever it wants, whenever it wants, staying there as long as it wants, and then when it gets bored looking for something else, say, okay, I'm going to practice choiceless awareness. Man, it's it, it's weird, and whether or not you're going to ever gain any understanding is sort of you know maybe you will you might luck out, but you know it's if you if you do that on the other hand if you, if you, if your mind is really well trained and you have powerful peripheral awareness that you can use in whatever way you want, then you can enter into this thing and say, okay, mind do your thing, but. Uh, but do it slow enough uh, so that I can watch and understand everything. Okay, so you get out of the super ball in an alley effect yeah. by saying, slow it down. Yeah, true. But that's why the, the point is, once you've developed stability of attention, and once you've developed really powerful mindfulness, there are literally dozens of practices that you can do, each of which is very powerful in the sense that it will illuminate some particular aspect of your mind and of the reality that your mind is creating leading to really deep insight. Okay? Do we have language for that or do we just have to go and find it? There's, oh, there's, 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 you learn to, you know, it's, it's by this point you're in graduate school and it's like what happens in graduate school. You have to learn all the lingo for 
Right, but I'm just hoping to confirm the language exists. The language, the language does exist. Not okay. only does the language exist, by the time you need to use those terms, you'll have a really solid understanding that allows you to interpret those words correctly. The problem is, when you don't have that foundation and somebody offers you the language, then you think it means something that it doesn't necessarily mean. Yes. Yes, notice that. Very annoying. So, the first, the first six of the ten stages are all about attentional stability and powerful mindfulness. And once you have these two things, you can do all kinds of. This is at this point, stage six. You're called a skilled meditator. You've mastered all of the skills. You've got them. You can use them however you want. Then you become an adept meditator. The last stages are how an adept meditator uses the skills that they've mastered. And all of these other practices, the Mahamudras and the choiceless awareness and the everything else, these, you know, they're so easy to use and so powerfully productive if you have stability of attention and powerful mindfulness. Now, if you don't, you know, you, well, it's the spokeshave analogy, analogy uh, metaphor again. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to stre- bring something up which you stress in your other teachings um, why we do meditation in relationship in context to our life. And so when I look just at the 10 stages and um, where is my own judgment, where I am, I look at my life. How is it working in my relationships, in my work, in my relation to the earth and to what's happening? And then I don't even worry about where I'm going. It's the process I'm in. When it works, it's good. Mm -hmm. So don't you think we should... This whole context is so important. Why we meditate? We are not in a cave, you know? We we don't want to be in a cave. So how it is applied to our life is our marker. that's the only judgment I can have on my own. You can tell me, you can help me, you can suggest, but I have to see where it works, right? Exactly right, yes. Yeah. And no matter how carefully I try to explain it and describe it to you, and how many different ways I try to put it, you'll never really understand it until you've experienced it. And when you do, it's just incredibly obvious and so simple that you'll say, I don't know why I didn't get this all along. Okay, so uh, I take it that I I just want to make sure we're going to have a break in a minute and then we're going to come back and move on to the next phase of this. I just wanted to make sure, you know, the distinction between attention and awareness and uh, spontaneous movements of attention versus intentional movements of attention and the, the, the fact that you do have a direct control over attention, you can aim it here, you can aim it there, you know, whereas with peripheral awareness it's all the stuff you have available to work with and you don't have any direct control over that. 
If something's not present in awareness, it might as well not exist, right? But if it's present in awareness, ah, you can you can do things with it. You can focus attention on it, or you can ignore it, or whatever. Right. Is that part of it all really crystal clear? No doubts. Yeah. It it really is. Um, for the first time, uh, I I had um, an insight about what it was to anchor myself mm-hmm. into uh, one place, which is the stability. I think you're talking about. And I practice the clarity, the concentration, and oftentimes in inches and in, in that technique, um, experience flow, but didn't quite uh, always experience equanimity as as that um, uh, spontaneous and uh, uh, at the same time the presence of the periphery and the and the anchor. And so I have that. I had that experience for the first time just about of, of the periphery, which is where everything really is that I probably want to deal with. <laughs> it's not my focus, it's not on my, you know, digestive tract or on my breathness or some more you know, other things that are usually in the periphery and uh, and kind of uneasy a little bit and, and when you describe that as awareness, you know, for the first time, I mean, it's not as if I hadn't thought about that, but I realized that um, there's a calm and a comfort and a peacefulness to being able to concentrate. Mm-hmm. And that is, that's the place from which you can begin to experience those things that are very challenging. And um, and they, they floated in closer, and there was a sense of interconnection between them, and that... Um, I really, I, I appreciate it so much, that equanimity. Thank you. All right, well, let's take a break. We can all line up for the hot water in the washrooms. <laughs>